Let me pray uh, as Pastor Joe comes up. Father God, uh, we just sang over and over again that your love endures forever, that you are a God of love. Uh, and we sing these songs over and over and these words over and over to you because the Bible, your word tells us over and over and over again that you love us. And that love is demonstrated towards us by you being the God who came towards us. You are the God that fights for us always. You fight for us when we refuse to fight for ourselves. You fight for us. You move towards us to bring us from the darkness into the light. God, the light of the world, the gift of your son that came to be with us, to move towards us, to fight for us, to love us, to reconcile us to you so we could be with you for eternity. God, pierce our hearts with that truth this morning. Open up our hearts, open up our eyes, open up our minds to the word that you've given to Pastor Joe to deliver us today. May he preach with boldness. May he declare the greatness of your name and the truth that you have given to him this morning. In the name of your son, amen. Amen. So... All right. So first of all, it's good to see you guys here. I remember last year on, I think uh, Sunday was January 1st. <clears throat> and there was like 35 people here because everybody was hungover, I guess, from New Year's Eve. I don't know. <clears throat> so I was remembering that. And then I found out, you know, Jeff wouldn't be here this week. So I remember that. And I thought, you know what? Nobody's going to come to church on Sunday. Jeff's not. I'm just going to mail it in. You know, I'll just get a, I'm just going to have a lazy sermon, you know, a, a, you know, just kind of like a, you know, soapbox sermon, just kind of open it up. And then but then the band does a really good job. You know, they do a great job. Good worship. And I think for the first time in the in the seven years that I have known Carl, he threw the stick up, actually caught it and hit the crack. <clears throat> That's the first time ever he threw it. Up. Normally he throws it up, misses it, picks up another one and he caught it. So now I have to do a good sermon. Well, I hope. We'll see. Uh, this week is the last. We're going to start uh, Second John next week. I'm excited, really excited about starting Second John next week. But we're going to do one more Advent sermon. I've titled this one, When Advent is Offensive. So now that holidays are almost over, I want to talk about the things that make Advent offensive. And it seems this time of year... <clears throat> people are extra easily offended about just about anything really that tampers with our worldview or our vision of what Christmas should be. Here are some 2018 highlights about what was offensive about Advent. First of all, baby, it's cold outside. Remember, that was a big deal. If you ever, ever, Don't sing that ever again. All right, whatever, you know. Then there was a uh, I read an article about old white Santa. That needs to change, apparently, because that's not acceptable either. So that's been offensive. And then there's, there's the Starbucks cup. Every year I read this story about how church people are offended by the Starbucks cups. You know, they've got a bad symbol. There's no Jesus on it, whatever. And people are offended really easily, it seems. And then the last one, the big one this year was the White House Christmas trees. A lot of people were really upset about the red White House. I mean, I don't really like them that much, but... It's no big deal, right? But people were really offended by all this stuff. Uh, then you got the stories about Rudolph. Apparently, the story of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer glorifies bullying. That's not good. And uh, there's a lot of things. But the funny thing is, you know, we kind of look at those. <clears throat> some of us laugh at it. Some Christians are really angry about some of this stuff, which, you know, whatever. But 
The funny thing is there are actually real reasons that Advent should be offensive, especially to us Christians. So I'm going to read a passage <coughs> from Isaiah chapter 42. If you'll bear with me, it's, it's nine verses. And it is, actually the, it is actually the first sort of prophecy of Advent. So let's just read this passage. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. In other words, he's not going to be a fighter. A bruised reed he will not break. More on that later. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. More on that later. <clears throat> he will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. He has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. I put that in bold for a reason. A little more on that later. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out. Who spread out the earth and what comes from it. Who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. He says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. <coughs> Excuse me. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to, to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass. The new things I now declare before they spring forth, I will tell you of them. Oh, I've got one, but thank you very much. But this one will be to be throwing people who fall asleep during my mailed-in sermon. <coughs> thank you. So thank you for the ammunition. I want to talk about the history of this. So why was the first advent so offensive? Let me explain to you what's going on. This prophecy that Isaiah writes is written while Israel is in a national crisis. They are exiled in Babylon. <clears throat> They're no longer in their homeland. They don't have their own government. They are under the bondage of a secular government that does not believe in God. There is no temple worship. The temple has been done away with. And I could imagine what they're thinking. How could the mighty deliverer have allowed this to happen to our great country? Has God abandoned us? Are we still God's people? <clears throat> was God even still God? You see, they had defined in their idea what hope was going to look like. And it was going to look like King David 2.0. A general, a fighter, who would come in and vanquish the evil nations. And bring them under our rules. Society was going to look like we think it should look like. The things that we value, they're going to be valuing. <clears throat> a military leader who would restore the greatness of the throne of David so that we could, in our power, in our ability to control the government, we would end up being a blessing to all the nations when we export Israel by ruling the world as we once did under King Solomon. Israel was waiting for their great king like David, a warrior, <coughs> a leader, and a fighter, but instead they got this. A Messiah who wouldn't be David or Solomon, but would be a servant. We see that in today's passage in verse 1 and one through 3. He's not going to cry aloud in the streets. He's not going to be loud. He's not going to be a fighter. This crushed the hopes of those hoping for a return to prominence like they had before. 
Matter of fact, he says, I have not come to steal or kill or destroy like, like a fighting general would. He says, but I have not come to do that. I've come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. So that was very offensive to people waiting for the first Christmas. What? It's not going to be like David or Solomon. <clears throat> it's going to be somebody quiet. It's going to be somebody who's gentle. We don't need gentle. We need a bull in a china shop. We got to get rid of Babylon. We got to get rid of Rome. And another reason that made Christmas very offensive, the first Christmas, is it wasn't just for Israel. We see that in verses 3 through 6 of today's passage. He talks about the coastlands, people waiting in the coastlands for God's law. He's talking about other nations, other countries being blessed. What the prophet is saying is, <clears throat> no longer will God's blessings throw, flow through Israel. They will uh, flow through my chosen who will bless other nations. Even the people that held Israel captive would be called out and saved. <clears throat> John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, the verse says this. I have a, it's a really cool verse that John wrote. We studied it not too long ago. He says, he is the payment for our sins and not just for our sins, but also for the whole world. Can you imagine how offended they must have been when they heard, wait a minute. Messiah is not coming just to rescue us, but to rescue everyone, even those who are oppressing us. Even those who want to do away with our traditions and our heritage and our legacy and our history, the ones that don't want us to worship in the temple, the new Messiah is coming to bless them too? You've got to be kidding me. <coughs> and then another reason why the first Christmas was offensive. Messiah would introduce grace. Now that sounds great, right? But it's a big problem. In verses 6 and 7, he basically says the religious zealousness of the Pharisees, temple worship, religion, being good at being Jewish, <clears throat> all that will be rendered obsolete, pointless, meaningless. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you've been saved through faith and not by works or else you'd brag it is the gift of God. So not only will he not be David or Solomon, not only is it for our nation, but for all nations, not only that, but our very heritage that we have identified with, temple worship, that's going to be made obsolete by this thing called grace. I don't want any part of Christmas. It's going to destroy everything I hold dear. Then lastly, another reason why Christmas would be offensive <clears throat> is it would transform culture. In all religious spheres, in verses 8 and 9, it talks about that in today's passage. Basically, what Isaiah says is he will do away with the very institution that had become the core of their identity. In John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll rise it up again. <clears throat> Here in this prophecy, in Isaiah, in a time of great national dismay, they're looking for some sort, well, we're in a hard time, Babylon's got us, or further forward, Rome, and things aren't good, but something good is coming. It's Advent. Messiah will come, and we will be rescued. So they're in this great national dismay. They had this glimmer of far-off hope, and then God explains how his promise of a far-off hope and blessings would no longer be targeted just at Israel but toward all those he would call, enlighten, 
and set free from darkness, including the evil nations that want to destroy Israel. Israel's no longer going to be the center of attention as it relates to connection to God. That's offensive. I mean, look at the context of the reference of this to um, uh, Jesus actually quotes this prophecy in Matthew. I'll just read it for you. And Jesus, aware of what was going on here, what was happening is, uh, this is on the heels of the Jewish religious leaders conspiring against Jesus to destroy him. His reputation, uh, they want to entrap him, they want to arrest him, they want to destroy him. And he references, while that, right after that happens, he references this prophecy that verifies that Isaiah was communicating what Advent was going to be. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, <clears throat> and many followed him. And he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen. This is right from the passage we read this morning. My beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. He, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will he, anyone hear his voice in the streets. In other words, he's not going to be a politician. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. The way it said it earlier was, the coastlands will hope. Coastlands is a reference to Gentiles. So that's the history. You can see why it would be offensive, right? You mean this Christmas thing? The thing that the shepherds are talking about? The thing that, you know, the angels in the fields and what Sim, uh, Simon, Simon is talking about and, and all the and Joseph and Mary and the wise men. The result of that is we lose our identity. We lose our heritage. All the nations we hate are going to be blessed. We're not going to be the center of attention anymore. That's what. No, thank you. So let's talk about the spiritual. What about God? What does he do? I want to talk about the Advent gospel connection. You see, <clears throat> Israel wanted Advent Christmas. So I want you to listen carefully. He wanted it to be all about, they wanted it to be all about them. This is what they've been waiting hundreds of years for. Messiah to come and avenge their values. Avenge their institutions. Their way of life. It's kind of like how, frankly, many Christians confuse patriotism, which, by the way, I'm a patriot, I love my country, but we confuse patriotism with spirituality. They're not the same. You know that, right? They no longer held a special right to God's blessings over all other nations. Even those Gentiles who held them in exile had just as much right and access to the blessings of Israel. The Advent message was, frankly, not only was it offensive, <clears throat> it was humbling for Israel. Because it expanded God's promises far beyond them and made them just a little sliver of the pie when it comes to being his people. See, they thought that the reason they were being exiled to Babylon and then under Roman authority was because they weren't good enough at their religion. And God's teaching us so we become better at religion, <clears throat> better at keeping God's law <clears throat> that was given just to us. But Jesus pointed out, no, no, I didn't put you in exile to punish you for being bad Jews. I put you in exile 
so it would reveal to you your depravity and your arrogance, even amidst your religious excellence. You see that? It crushed their hopes. It upset the status quo, made them rethink everything about how they did church. Here's some verses in Isaiah 29, 13. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. What's that sound like? Religion. They talk a good game. They show a good game. They put on a good display, but their hearts are not connected. Isaiah 39 through 11, for they are rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to seers, in other words, people who are telling truth, don't tell us truth, don't see. And to the prophets, don't prophesy to us what is right. Compromise your message. Speak to us with smooth things. Prophesy about dreams or illusions or fantasies. Don't tell us the real stuff. Make us feel good about what we're doing. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about this Holy One of Israel. He's offensive. I don't want to hear any more about how God is going to change the way we operate. We like the way we operate. We like considering ourselves special. See, Isaiah's Advent prophecy told Israel they were depraved. Helpless and in desperate need of grace. God's favor was no longer reliant upon them, but now it was reliant through his chosen, through Christ. And they had to share this favor with their persecutors. Babylon, Rome, Greece, So let's talk about the personal side. Why Advent 2018 is offensive. So I'm going to share with you my heart about the way I see Christmas in America today. And I wanted to wait till after Christmas to preach this sermon, right? So that way you could enjoy it. And now. I fear our annual hope for Advent has become just like the Advent Israel was hoping for. Like, for example, our ridiculous sensitivity over the war on Christmas. Well, of course there's a war war on Christmas. If there wasn't, God would be a liar. He said, don't you know the world's going to hate you? I'm thankful there's a war on Christmas. That means, oh, well, God is telling the truth. You ever thought about that? If everybody just loved Christmas, it wouldn't be Christmas. I mean, what do you think when Jesus comes back? He's going to crush the war on Christmas? Like the Messiah Israel was waiting for? Messiah is going to force everyone to have a Christmas tree. All of you. Everybody's going to sing about how it's cold outside. Every one of you. And the Starbucks cup will have a picture of Jesus on it. Right? Boy, when Jesus comes back, then everybody's going to love Christmas. Isn't that the same kind of thing that Israel was hoping for? When Messiah comes back, everybody's going to be Jewish. With that in mind, 
as we get upset about that stuff, you ever consider how much hypocrisy is in the church, especially in America? I mean, God's people today are so, and I'm talking about myself too, I'm not saying that you guys, I'm all of us. God's people today were so full of the same arrogance that Israel struggled with. Just like Israel, we are just as in love with our institutions and our traditions as they were, especially our Christmas ones. And just like them, we all desperately need grace and mercy during our religious holiday excellence. Look, I'm afraid the real message of Advent 2018 isn't what most Christians have made it out to be. And let me tell you, the real message is way too radical for most of the church in America. I think the message of Advent 2018, the one that should shape us for what we do starting, you know, in a couple days in 2019... You know what I think it is? What I think it should be? Stop making Christmas about us. It's not about us. It wasn't about Israel. We have grace. We have what we need. We need to make sure we are never selfish with grace and its symbols and how we venerate them, yet we are. We are so good at making Advent all about us, aren't we? We knock ourselves out to make sure that Advent is what we want it to be. And we get upset when other people interfere. And we make sure that there is nothing despicable about the Christmas message that we intend to hear. It's all very well managed from our song list to our shopping list to our baking list to our relatives that we invite and don't invite. Sometimes we even do some convenient seasonal mercy and benevolence. But we make sure that even when we do that, it doesn't infringe upon what we love most about our Advent. That's protected. It's cordoned off. But church, this is what the real Advent is about. The broken reeds. You know what the broken reed is a picture of? It's a picture of a stalk, a thin stalk that is so weak that it can't even hold up the flower it's supposed to support. And Isaiah said he's not going to even come. You think he's going to come as a military leader? No, he's not going to even come and take care of the broken reed. He's going to be careful around the broken reed. It's a very gentle idea, a gentle broken reed that doesn't have any way to stand up against any force. It can't even be used to make a basket, a broken reed. It is useless. It is helpless. It is strengthless. Or the flickering wick, which is a weak flame. Hurting. Despairing. Running out of fuel to keep the fire going. All it would take is a... And it's out. 
That's what Advent is about. It's about the broken weeds, or broken reeds, the flickering wicks, which we all once were. And frankly, we still are, even after grace. It needs to be, Stephen Graff says, it needs to be about the equivalent of what the Gentiles were to Israel that Isaiah was talking about. You follow me? He says, I'm sending you Messiah, and it's not about you anymore. It's about the broken reeds and the flickering wicks. The Gentiles, the coastlands, await their hope. Who are our Gentiles now? I mean, yes, we're Gentiles, but as God's people, the idea of Gentiles was people that you don't think are God's people are going to become God's people. I'm going to call them out of darkness into light. I'm going to keep them. I'm going to save them. I'm going to transform them. All the blessings of Abraham that I've given you, I'm also going to give to them. And it's not going to flow through you and your temple and your religion. It's going to flow through my son, Jesus. Who are the equivalent of our Gentiles? That's who Advent was created for. The broken reeds and the flickering wicks who are not part of our little church. And because, you know, subconsciously, what I think we do sometimes in America is we work to manage or exclude the broken reeds and flickering wicks, don't we? Sometimes we'll go out of our way a little bit but year-round, we try to make sure that we manage the impact of Advent. And we don't love the broken reeds and the flickering wicks, except on our terms. And just like Israel was, <clears throat> I think the American church can tend to be way too hypocritical and lacking compassion for those outside our church walls. That's who Advent is for. We become very impatient with people morally, don't we? I mean, don't we? Jesus does not despise the broken reeds and the flickering wicks. He didn't come for the strong and the beautiful and the religious excellence. He didn't come to set up amazing church programs, kind of like equivalent to the resetting up the temple and the throne of David. He didn't come to come to make American church and the global church some sort of great institution that can meet all the consumerism needs of the church. He didn't come to set up a church that fills the appetite of Christians through what they can get through gathering together. He came for the broken reeds. He came for the flickering wicks. He came for the weak and feeble. He came for the defenseless. He came for the outcasts. He came for the ones on the coastland who are awaiting their hope. Advent is about making inroads into a world that by all religious standards is broken and despicable. That's the true meaning of what the first advent was. Hey, I'm coming, and everything you thought about church is going to change. That's the real message that Advent 2018 had. Frankly, it's the same one 
that Advent 1 had. <laughs> I have come. I'm going to set religion on its ear. <clears throat> the people you think that are against you, I'm going to draw them in and save them and make them one of you. And you're going to like it. <laughs> Heavenly Dad, as we close out a few weeks of focusing on Advent, we confess to you, <clears throat> we subconsciously and consciously do a good job of making, making Christmas about us. <clears throat> we don't want to do that in 2019. The message of Advent is not constrained to four or five weeks between Thanksgiving and Christmas. It's a calling. It's a paradigm shift. It's a transformation of your church from inward to outward, to selfish to selfless. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to hear the true message of Christmas and not be offended, but in humility and grace, accept it with thankful hearts. <clears throat>